Well, whenever people come to me and tell me that they want to write a novel or get into publishing and they ask me what classes should they take, what books should they read, I just send them uh, to you. I say, just listen to the bestseller experiment. Um, you really got it covered A to Z. You don't have to waste your time getting a degree because I feel like it's all there. And I'm not just I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass because I listen to a lot of podcasts. And this is one where you cover craft and you cover the business aspect, yeah. and indie publishing, and traditional publishing. And, and I just uh, and I really enjoy you and Mark's rapport and the way you guys analyze and kind of we call it Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, go back and yeah, yeah. analyze what the what the guest said. And so um, it's yeah. been it's been wonderful for me. I walk my dog every morning and I, I, I listen to you guys. Hello and welcome to the bestseller experiment where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark Devon. Before we dive into this week's amazing, and I, I say that every week, but this is an amazing squared episode. It's brilliant. It's a good one. It's a good, it's one. A good one. We haven't even recorded it yet, have we? Um, but we know it's going to be good. Um, we just want to say thank you, of course, to all of our incredible patrons and our Bestseller Academy members. Without you, we would not be entering your earlobes and earbuds at this very point in time. It's because of you that this podcast happens. So thank you so much. And if you would like to be like the good people uh, that support this podcast, um, and just pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support. Now, Mr. Stay, the, these are the kind of the episodes we dream of, really, isn't it? I mean, there's a whole story behind this episode, and it's hard to know even where to begin because there's so much to it. Well, let's um, let's let's talk about the first email that we got from Aggie. So Ag Aggie Bloom Thompson, she's worked as a newspaper reporter. She's covered cops and courts and trials. Uh, she's written for the Boston Globe, Washington Post. She's a New Yorker, lives in Washington, D.C. And then in 2019, uh, she dropped us a line via email. And I think you've got the email there, haven't you, Mr. She D? did, absolutely. She said, Dear Marks, this is the f a first for me, writing a note to podcasters. But I've <laughs> finally been spurred to action by listening to episode number three, The Plot Thickens. Yes, I'm late to the game and have just started listening to the podcast about 10 days ago. But since I subscribed to Einstein's theory of relativity, this podcast is happening in real time for me. So no spoilers, please. <laughs> And then she goes on to say, I live outside Washington, D.C. in Maryland and walk my rambunctious golden retriever named Pistachio every morning over the line into D.C. proper, about a mile to a local coffee shop and back, during which time I listened to podcasts and discovered a good podcast on writing is like finding a pearl. For the past 10 days, that's been you guys. And I have to admit, I was a bit sceptical at first. But you have thoroughly won me over with your enthusiasm and humour, insight and mad interviewing chops, Mr. Stein. Um, and Jen, she says, as a, a former newspaper reporter, she really appreciates these uh, interviewing skills, like harder than it seems, she says. Anyway, we digress. She says, the reason I started listening to the beginning um, was to find motivation to get more words on the page during the holidays. I recently uh, snagged a great agent for a novel that I wrote, not my first, but my fourth been a while at this <laughs> and the manuscript is now out on submission the advice one uh, while one is out on sub is to keep writing seems the advice is always to keep writing isn't it so simple yet so hard 
and I can hear just as a, as a little side, I hear all of our listeners like nodding like mad at this yeah, point, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 right? Yeah. Um, but I have to admit, the Daily Dose of Your Podcast has kept my mind in the game and I have been meeting my workout and progressing quite nicely. And then she references authors like Sarah Pinbra and Liz Fennick, you know, discovering new authors have really, has really helped her. Um, so anyway, she's very, says some very kind things about the podcast, but then she mentions uh, um, the other night I was making dinner for my kids and it was a tough day. And after listening to the Ben Aronovich interview oh, on God. my earbuds, <laughs> yeah, well, here we go. Right again. I, I started laughing so hard. I had to put down my kitchen knife safety first. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for that. A good laugh is hard to come by these days and so sorely needed. And this is the best bit of the whole, of the whole part of her email. Remember this is December, 2019. She says, I hope the next time I write, um, and if there is a next time is hmm. to tell you that I've got a book deal in the meantime, um, you know, look forward to catching on the podcast. Best Aggie. So that was December, 2019. Wasn't it Mr. State? Yeah. So now we have the, the, the Batman interlude, did a little, 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 cut to April, 2022. And Aggie got in touch and said, uh, hello from America. It's been more than two years since I last wrote you. And while I'm sure that you've survived without an update, I wanted to <laughs> offer one. Uh, and she said, well, it happened. And what I got a two book deal with Forge Macmillan and my debut novel, a thriller called I Don't Forgive You was released last summer. It's done very well, although not quite bestseller. Well, the Washington Post called it a perceptive and beautifully assured piece of domestic noir so obviously i had that tattooed across my lower back <laughs> and then she says the book was optioned for a streaming series by big shot hollywood producers so we'll see if anything comes of that and she says my second thriller all the dirty secrets will come out this summer and it is out now folks it's out already so and she's currently at work on the third again she says some nice things about the podcast um so how could we resist how could we resist getting aggie on the podcast and one of the best decisions i've made all year this is this is such a great interview so we discuss we discuss how the first thing she wrote was banned at school how she was inspired by her father and how she tells us the meaning of the word plonster and also talk about we made her laugh and she had to put down the kitchen knife she made me laugh so much in this interview i i pretty much had to stop the interview you might hear a little cut <laughs> where i had to stop because she made me laugh so much so here we go oh folks listen strap in because this is i would say in the six years of now doing this podcast mark this is the kind of dream interview that mark and i've always wished for this is absolutely brilliant and and more more than brilliant it is going to inspire the pants of all of you listening right now all of you <laughs> i promise so without without ado let's dive in and listen to mark chatting with the lovely absolutely lovely aggie bloom thompson aggie bloom thompson welcome to the bestseller experiment how are you today i'm very well thank you Oh, I'm delighted to have you here. It's um, you, you have an incredible story, an incredible road to publication, but also you have two amazing books out. The latest of which is is all the dirty secrets, which I saw a brilliant unboxing video that you did with your dog Pistachio on Instagram the other day. And folks, do check out Aggie's Instagram; it is just wonderful. Um, but tell us about all the dirty secrets. So All the Dirty Secrets is a thriller, um, what some people call a domestic thriller, although it's not really, I don't think it's very domestic, but it's not an international thriller or high stakes thriller. And it's about a mom in the DC area who went to private school and is now um, 
an adult of a child who goes to the same private school. And there are two deaths 25 years apart at um, the beach that end up being connected. And it's sort of about privilege and the private school scene and how our ideas about sex and teenagers and drinking have changed in the past 25 years. And do we hold people the same standards that we did 25 years ago? And how much do we know about our teenagers and what are they doing and how much freedom should we give them? And uh, lots of stuff like that. And murder, of course. Of course. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. no, it's fantastic. It's, um, it feels very, very timely. Where did this, where did the spark for this one come from? So I'm from New York and I moved to the DC area when I married my husband and in the mid-Atlantic region of America, there is something called beach week, which I had never heard of, which is parents rent their kids' houses on the shore the week after they graduate high school. And they go out there in droves all from New Jersey down to the Carolinas and they just party with no adult supervision with lots of alcohol. I mean, what could go wrong, Mark? What could possibly go wrong? And when I heard about wrong? this, I said, <laughs> this has got to be the setting for a thriller, right? Mm. It's it's a huge deal here. And I, I, it's even hard now to wrap my mind around it, that you would send your kids off with cases of beer. But it's a real cultural thing here. And I thought, oh, yeah, there's a murder happening there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you do seem to delight in taking the facade of the American suburb, the white picket fence, and peering through the blinds and seeing, as per the title, all the dirty secrets. Is that is that something that is that it's one of those things where you, you you know, if you're mining for story and you hit a seam and you think, oh, there's plenty here. Is this is this gonna be the fuel in your tank for some time now, I think? I think so. My first book was about a suburban mom who moved to an um, upscale neighborhood and was mm. immediately framed for her neighbor's murder. And uh, her someone took over her social media and impersonating her and no one believed her. And so, yeah, it's all it's all there. Modern living. I think sometimes I feel trapped in the suburbs. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> ordinary things like the school run or uh, can feel nightmarish. And so I just kind of ramp it up to a 10. Excellent. I, I love the titles as well. Your, your debut thriller was called I Don't Forgive You, which is such a um, it's, it's such a great statement. It immediately grabs you and you think, wow, who's writing this? So uh, we'll come, we're will going to go back to how it will start for you and work up to I Don't Forgive You, but I'd love to know more about this. Tell, tell us where that title came from. Immediately. It was, I had a title before I even started writing. Right. I just love the idea of revenge. And I love the idea, you know, <laughs> nowadays the ethos is, um, you know, meditate, be mindful, forgive, move on. Don't let it take up space in your brain. And I thought, let me create a woman who has done none of that. Yeah. She's obsessed. She is not forgiving anyone. And she's created an elaborate plan to get revenge on someone who she thinks has wronged her. Mm. And I just, I love that idea. It's, it's Shakespearean to me. And, um, and I think people resonate with it because none of us uh, will, will go to those lengths, but we all have someone probably in our lives who we think, you know, she could use a little comeuppance. <laughs> <Or maybe. laughs> <Not> just me. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Well, look, let Aggie, let's go back to where it all started. And, the first thing that I can find is is in high school you wrote a scandalous novella. T- tell me about that. Tell us about that yeah. and the the repercussions of that. 
That was middle school, actually. I wrote a novella right. where I, I I so loosely changed the names of everyone. So, you know, Betty was Betsy, right? <laughs> and Lizzie was Liza and um, all the teachers in my school. And I, I I wrote it out. I typed it up on my mom's Olivetti and I brought it to school and we it was passed around school and it was, it was really popular. But my science teacher, Mr. Nagrowski, confiscated it. And um, and that was the end of that. And the same thing happened to me in fifth grade. I was part of the crew. This is a really funny story. We decided to write a like a pornographic magazine, but like more like a pornographic literary journal. So we all wrote stories and poems. And I wrote a four-page rhyming poem called The Roustabout about a woman who ends up a stowaway on a ship and has to pay her fare. Right. And we decided... The way we were going to illustrate this was um, with Playboy magazine. And this is like the 70s and 80s. So I just walked into, I was like 10. I walked into our local uh, stores called Big Top and I just bought a Playboy. (laughs) It's for my dad. So I took it to school and we were going to cut and paste this, you know, and create this whole thing. And I'm not, I'm not ashamed to call him out by name. Mikey Forrest told on us. He <laughs> went to the principal. And I'll never forget being called into the principal's office. We had to turn over the Playboy, turn over all our writing. And that was the end of that. Wow. So, long Mighty. history. Mighty. Shame on you. Shame yeah. on you, Mikey. That's incredible. And that's... You know, we're living in a time with banned books, uh, you know, people very afraid of the written word, but it's kind of always been that way. But there's a great liberation in terrifying people with nothing more than just words on a page, isn't there? There's something really powerful about that, isn't there? Is is that what got you on the hook? Well, I was very, I was very lucky. My parents were really weird. I have really weird parents. <laughs> and I wasn't allowed to watch TV. I wasn't allowed to watch movies. I wasn't allowed to play with Barbie. Um, but I was allowed to read anything I wanted. And right. I mean, anything. So every Friday we would go to the library and I lived in a terrific town in New York where the library stayed open until 10 PM on Friday. Cool. And my dad would just drop us off right after dinner and say, come back when the closing bell chimes. And we were allowed to check out as many books as we could carry. And I would read crazy stuff. I mean, Jim Jones, cults, uh, Saul, what's his name? John Saul. Did you ever read John Saul horror when when you were growing up? Doesn't ring a bell. Twice Sorry, no. Yeah, Comes okay. the blind fury. And, oh, such a good writer. V.C. Andrews, Flowers in the Attic. Perfect. The most yeah. inappropriate stuff. I was reading Pimp by Iceberg Slim, which is mem- his memoir of being a pimp and being sent to prison. I mean, they never looked. They didn't care at all. So that was my. They thought you know, TV was trash but they let me read anything. As long as you're reading. This is yeah. the thing. Is it, As long as the kids are reading, it's fine. The written right. word, yeah. I, that, right. I mean, I, I was the same, actually. I was I was getting very, very weird stuff out. And um, it's uh, it's what I try and say to kids who are reluctant readers. Do you realise what's in the library? <laughs> Do you totally. have any idea? Yeah, it's yeah. just wonderful. Great. So this clearly warped your poor, fragile young mind, or did it inspire It did. You? It seriously <laughs> did. And I grew up at a time... Um, in the 70s and 80s in New York, where there was just the most insane crimes going on, you know, yeah. Son of Sam, there were there was Howard Beach. This probably doesn't mean anything to you, but in New York, you could just imagine the 70s and 80s, there were 
serial killers, there were riots, there were racial crimes. It was, it was just craziness. And I always found that stuff fascinating. And I became a police reporter actually before I, I became a novelist, but I, I do have a real thing for crime and rule. Do you know who she is? She, Oh yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. 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 So yeah. I loved all that stuff. Yeah. Terrific. So was it a case of, uh, because I, I know I know New York was was uh, very high crime at that time. You know, I watched Hill Street Blues like everyone else. You know, so I, <laughs> that, what was it a, a case of escaping into the books? You know, putting the real world outside the door. And I know, you know, if you're reading crime books and uh, horror and that kind of thing, y- there's a catharsis to it as well. It's kind of it. It's how you can certainly for me. It's how I learned to cope with the real world by, by examining it on the page rather than have to deal with the real thing. Was it like that with you? You know, it's funny. I think there's an element of that, but for me, reading was always making sense of the world. Yeah. 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 Right. So I would hear about the Jim Jones cult and everyone drinking Kool-Aid and I'd want to know more. Why would they do that? How can you get people to do that? Who were these people? And, you know, back in those days, there was no internet. You couldn't Google these things. So you'd go get a book. I didn't understand a lot. You know, New York was falling apart in a lot of ways. America, anything that was interesting to me, books were where I went to understand the world. So Mm. I wouldn't exactly say it was an escape. In some ways, it was because time goes by and you're in this other world. But it's how I learned about the world and, and about things um, outside of my own little experience, my own little bubble. And, you know, you're writing these novellas, you're writing fiction or thinly veiled nonfiction in, uh, at school. Was it all, did you always want to be a novelist or was the police reporter thing, was that kind of, okay, that's a more realistic career. Maybe I can be a novelist further down the line. How, how was that panning out for you? So I always wanted to be a writer. I wrote plays and poems and short stories. And and I was rejected starting at a very young age. I was sent out to contests. I never heard back from anybody. Um, My high school literary magazine was run by this mafia of cool you know, literary girls, and they didn't take any of my writing ever. Um, I had better luck in college when I was uh, in college in New York. Um, I got things published in the literary magazines, but also I took a class and this was at Columbia and, and it was a very specific kind of writing that they taught in that class, um, not genre writing, um, very literary. And I didn't, even though I got an A in the class, it was more because I was trying to please the teacher than I was really writing what I was interested in. When I graduated college, I got a job kind of bartending, waitressing, and I wrote my first novel in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I got an agent right away and she couldn't sell it. And that was, I'm embarrassed to say that was mind blowing to me. I didn't know that could happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought the hard part was writing it. I didn't realize that you might get an agent and she couldn't sell it. And I literally had no plan B. I had right. no idea what to do with myself. I was not skilled in anything or prepared to do anything. So besides write and read. So I, I became a newspaper reporter. Um, I shouldn't say there's no skill involved. There's a lot of skill involved yeah, yeah, in being yeah. a reporter. And that was actually a really good fit for me. I um I started off in the South, and that's a whole like that's like a sitcom, like the Jewish New Yorker being a cops reporter in the South. I mean, it was it was really funny. 
<laughs> it was really like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. I mean, I didn't blend, but I had a great time. It was so much fun. I got to carry around a police scanner. I like to pride myself on showing up at crime scenes before the cops. Right? And they don't like, they do not like that when you're there first interviewing people. So it was a blast. Um, and I got a lot of great material, but definitely reporting was something I did because I, my first novel didn't sell. And I wrote a second novel and the same exact thing happened. Right. And then I met my husband, we got married, um, we had kids, we moved to France, um, came back to America, and I was working at a newspaper here. And it was the summer of 2013. And my I got a phone call from my dad, and he told me he had lung cancer and he had six months to live. Oh, Less than six months. And it was um, you know, I burst out crying as you know. Yeah, want yeah, to do. Yeah, yeah. And um, he said, you know, don't cry for me because I've had an amazing life. My dad was a psychiatrist and he loved his work. He worked in hospitals and in private practice. And he said he, he'd had a, uh, everything he'd wanted to do in his career and he'd traveled and he had, you know, wonderful kids and grandkids <laughs> and don't cry for me because, because I'm not sad. And I got off the phone and I thought, am I even close to saying that? what he says, you know? Um, and I realized I, I still really wanted to publish a novel. And so I signed up for a writing course at this local writer center in Bethesda, Maryland, which is a terrific resource. And it was a very different writing course than usual. It was like a boot camp more than um, some kind of uh, literary metaphor, analyze, you know, trying to create beautiful sentences and find the perfect word. It was more like, where are your pages this week? Why aren't you moving forward? Where's act one? Where's act two? Have you come up with a list of agents? Have you written your query letter? So it really lit a fire under me. And I wrote what I thought was a terrific novel about an international uh, diplomat who's um, a female um, diplomat who's um, an international thriller. And I got an agent and we went out there and uh, got a lot of great feedback. We love this. We love the voice. We don't know where to place this. We don't know how to market this. This is what I heard. Uh, women don't buy international thrillers and men won't buy international thrillers featuring women. And uh, I heard this so often and I also heard, do you ever write domestic thrillers? Do you ever, we, we love your voice. Can you write us a domestic thriller? Do you love how they say that? Like, like it's so easy. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just go home can and write just, a domestic can, yeah. thriller. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll see you on Monday. Yeah. So um, I did that. <laughs> I went home and I wrote the domestic thriller. And that took, you know, a year or two. And I reached out to my um, agent and I said, I've got great news. I've written this thriller. And I sent it to her crickets. So I reached out again and I said, did, did you get it? And she said, you know, I'm sorry. I am. I'm just not feeling it. I don't think that it's competitive enough for the market. It's no gone girl is what she said. Yeah. Ooh. And, um, but, but you know what? Everything, I hate to sound cheesy, but everything happens for a reason. Yeah. 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 <laughs> She's not the right person. Right. I mean, when you have an agent, it's like having a really a bad agent. It's like having a really shitty boyfriend. Yes. And and, yeah. and you feel like any boyfriend is better than no boyfriend, especially because like Valentine's Day is coming up and you don't <laughs> want to break up quite yet. But there's never a good time to break up with that shitty boyfriend, except right now. Yeah. <laughs> and so I turned to my husband. And I said, well, should I just put this in a drawer and start over? 
And he's a very reasonable person. He said, no, you should fire your agent. So (laughs) I went back through my rejections, right? I had kept them all because they were lovely. And I found one that I really liked, (laughs) full of praise and validation. And I said, I'm going to reach out to this woman and ask her what to do. Because she's the one who told me to write a domestic thriller. Um, And so I went Googling for her. She no longer worked at that publishing company. And I said, oh, damn. But I decided I'm going to find her. I don't care if she's like making artisanal goat cheese up in Vermont right now. I'm going to track her down and get some answers. And this is where being a reporter comes in yeah, handy. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I did track her down because she had hung out a shingle as an independent editor. And I was like, okay, that's a sign from God. So I reached out to her and I said, this is what's happened. And she said, I'd love to work with you. So I hired her as an independent editor. And she read my book and gave me, you know, one really big edit. It's very interesting. It wasn't major work in the book. It was, you need this one thing. And you know what that one thing was, Mark? Murder. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's true. The first version of my draft didn't have murder. It was a revenge story, but it didn't have a murder to kick it off. Right. And she said, people will want a murder to kick it off. You can keep everything else. Everything else is fine. And I went back and I made that change. And um, on her, the strength of her recommendation, um, I was introduced to about 15 agents and I got four offers. And then I found my amazing agent, Katie Shea Boutillier, and she took it to auction and the rest is history. Wow. Well, that. Aggie, can can you hear Mr. D is listening back to the recording of this and he's scribbling like a fiend. That is this is this is catnip to him. I mean, what an extraordinary story. Not least the uh, Jewish report Jewish New York reporter going to the deep south. That in itself is a sitcom. That that I, I want I to see it really that. Was. I, I want you to see no that on idea. Netflix right now. It's such a great People show. People would I'd... say to me, like, are y'all a Jew? Because y'all don't look like a Jew. Like, oh, you can't say that. <laughs> Oh, Aggie, you've got to write that. I, I want I to watch that I mean, show right your now. heart. You're a Jew. <laughs> but everyone was really nice. I'm not disparaging. I know, I know, I know, everyone I know. was really nice to me. I experienced um, no anti-Semitism. Yeah. No, no. This is extraordinary because, you know, you, you had that agent, you had that, that, that first agent, those first rejections, and then, you know, you, you put everything on pause for your family. Was there ever? I'd like to, I yeah, just go. I didn't just put it on pause for my family. If I'm being honest, the biggest mistake I made was taking the rejection personally. Right. I felt it was a mark. I felt this is how I felt. Oh, I've been called up to the majors. Excuse my baseball metaphor, but in America we have minor league baseball and major league baseball. Yeah. You can be called up to the majors to the big show, and you have a shot. And if you blow it, you go back. And that's how I felt. Like I had my shot. And I blew it. Right. I didn't realize that even getting that far meant so much. And I just needed yeah. to break through because I didn't have any confidence. Um, and part of that is just me. And part of that is in the 90s and early aughts or whatever, there really wasn't a big writing community. So yeah, if you, yeah. I was alone. I didn't know any novelists. I didn't have anyone um, mentoring me. And I just didn't have the confidence to keep going. And so- that's a regret I have is that I just didn't try again right away. Yeah. Yeah. It's very true. It's some, um, 
people think they know what rejection means or they think but they think oh maybe i get rejected a few times and then that's it uh, but the rejection never ever stops it's it's just a fact of life and it's just something you have to break through you just have to shrug it off and, and keep going um but Wait, was there a point where you were thinking, okay, this is it, I'm not going back? Or was it always there? Were you always thinking, no, I need to go back to this is kind of calling to me. This is this is something I have to do. The, the latter. I mean, I was always writing. I wasn't always trying right. to, I wasn't always submitting, but I was always writing. And I had, you know, sort of like this sick feeling within me, like I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be doing this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I would go into bookstores and I love bookstores, but I also feel kind of depressed. Like, I Aggie, get your act together, you yeah, know? Yeah. Um, and I that's why when my dad said that to me, it really sparked something in me because it it wasn't something I kind of wanted to do. It was something I really wanted to do. Yeah, I know that I know that feeling. I know that sickening feeling. And then you see, and we can't we can't ever admit to this, but you know, we see other people having success. And you think, oh, why isn't that me? What what have oh, I done I'll wrong? What, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, why is what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? Right. But you, exactly. Yeah, yeah. but you, you know, you don't you see their success. You don't see all the failures that came before that. You don't see everything that went wrong in their lives too to get them there. But going back to your your father and that extraordinary thing that he said, which is you know, don't cry for me, which is. An, it shows an amazing awareness in the face of something just, oh, I, I can't even begin to think about it, but that talk about how that inspired you because it's kind of, it's, it's almost like a memento Mori thing, isn't it? It's it's kind of, I think it's such a wonderful gift that he gave to you. I'm starting to sound like Mr. D now. <clears throat> it's, yeah. a, it's a wonderful gift that he gave to you as if to say, stop waiting for life to start. It starts right now. Yes. And he also, and in that moment, he also, um, I would, he stopped me from worrying about him. That's the other gift he gave me, right? He, he gave me the gift of, of, he didn't put what, maybe he did have fears or anxieties about dying, but he decided I'm not going to put that onto my daughter. Right. And that was also really, that's a beautiful thing. We do that as parents, right? Mm -hmm. When we have a moment to share, uh, insecurities or anger or weakness with our children and we choose not to because we don't want to put that on our children we're not we don't want to make them responsible for our feelings and mm. and in a way that was also a big gift um and yes i i looked at my father and at a very young age my dad would say to me there's a difference between a job and a career a, a job is something they pay you to do a career is something you would be doing anyway find something that you love that you would want to do anyway. And you'll never, you know, the old saying, you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah. And and it's not true that there's no work involved in writing books or being a writer, but wow, you and I both know mm-hmm. it beats anything, right? Yep. It really, it really does. does. Yeah. It really, really does. What was your father's name? Martin. Martin, we salute you, sir. We salute you. Um, just fantastic. Let's talk about uh, the way that you write, because I I've seen interviews where you talk, you're talking about colored pens, you're talking about sticky notes. It feels very, very tactile. I know you're a gardener. You're like my wife. She likes to get her hands dirty in the garden. Is that tactile thing? Is that, is that, does that come from gardening? Is that all part of your process? And I'm a, I'm a quilter and a knitter. And um, I just, I have a huge garden and I like being physical. I like to write by hand. 
And I like, I like the look of a manuscript that's been written up and marked up and has little notes. I don't know why, (laughs) because there's probably no correlation between the quality of writing, but it's just, it it feels like I'm physically doing something. Whereas when I'm tapping on a keyboard, I just don't, I don't have that visceral and emotional connection to a computer or a keyboard that I do. Mm. So I I do write a a very bare bone kind of uh, 20 to 40,000 word skeletal draft or outline on the computer. And when I say skeletal, I mean, chapter four could say, um, Mary finds out the thing that makes her want to go to St. Louis. Right. That could be the whole chapter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or this is where they have a big fight and the letter is discovered. That It can be that bare bones. Um, I always, not always, but I should say I tend to write dialogue first. I tend to go in dialogue heavy. Yeah. Um, and then I end up with this document. I print it out and that's where the fun begins. Then I sit down with all my pens and my yellow graph paper and I, I hand write to fill in on this sort of scaffolding that I have. Great. And um and then I, I, when I type that back into the computer, again, I kind of do a little more rewriting, right? Because as we're typing in our notes, we realize, oh, well, I can do it even better. Yeah. So it's a layer. It's a layering process. I, I, I'm very similar in that I'm, I'm handwriting now. And I, I feel there's a direct connection between the brain and the pen that I never have with a keyboard. And you're right. Once you're typing it up, you can finesse. You can add little bits as well. So it is, it is like your first draft. There's already two drafts in as well. You know, you feel like you've done quite a bit of tidying before you get to uh, get to that point. You also you've used the word plonster. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, <laughs> you, you know the age old. Are you a, a plotter, plotter or a panster? Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, so I, I I think of it. This is my analogy. You ready for a long winded analogy? We love a so, long-winded analogy. You know that, Aggie. <laughs> terrific. I know. Uh, I was listening to someone talk about their mountain climbing the other day, and, and you get to the peak, and then there's another peak. Another peak. So my analogy is uh, in the old days, before the internet, we would, uh, if you went on a road trip in America, you would right away to AAA, which is like the Automobile Association. Mm-hmm. You tell them where you wanted to go, and believe it or not, they would mail you back a custom map. Yes. Yeah. And the map would be spiral. And it would be this chunk of road and then this chunk of road. It was, and someone would highlight it with a highlighter. It was so cute. That was someone's job. <laughs> so I drove cross country. I've driven cross country five times. I love doing it. It's an wow. amazing experience, right? So I like in writing my novel too. I'm starting in New York. I'm ending up in LA. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm obviously going to go through the Midwest somewhere, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where, Michigan, Colorado, like wherever the day takes me. Um, I know I, won't, I might have to hit certain things. Like let's say I for sure want to hit Salt Lake City, but everything else is up for grabs. We'll see how it goes. You know, as long as I have a destination, then I'm I'm good. Um, but to be absolutely honest, even the destination is a little dicey because <laughs> like I don't decide who my killer is until the end of the book. So. Oh. Cool. Yeah. We've heard that a few times before. In fact, I think you're in very good company. I believe Agatha Christie used to do that as well, didn't? And she got to yeah. The and I understand chapter. why, mm. because you invest all your suspects equally. Yeah, yeah. That that coast to coast drive. I think you've just also described the great American novel, haven't you? You know, there's there's a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's it's terrific. That is great. I love that. And it's a drive I'd love to do one day as well. It's just oh, you really amazing. should. Yeah. And you should you should go east to west. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. The East Coast is very constipated and cramped, and then it starts to open up, <laughs> and you get to the Great West, and it's amazing. Mm. No, so. I, I, I definitely so it's on the bucket list. Definitely on the bucket list. This is just fantastic. You you spoke about. Um, I saw you write somewhere that that one of your dreams before you were published was to see one of your books on a table in a in a bookstore. That's a dream that's fulfilled. What's what's coming next for you, Aggie? What's what's the next big dream? Well, I just signed for another two book deal. Fantastic. That's very exciting. Congrats. Brilliant. Yeah. And that that uh, traditional publishing is pretty slow compared mm-hmm. to in, indie publishing. Yeah. So that third book won't be coming out until the spring of 2024. Crikey. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And then I have a fourth book coming out after that. Excellent. Um, but, you know, Excellent. I do have this little tiny dream and it's very much inspired by your podcast which is to do a series, you know? Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, I wonder if I'll be able to work that into my my career at some point, is to kind of create a universe, you know, and, and do a series. Well, I think if you've proven anything, Aggie, uh, anything is possible. And uh, if anyone can do it, you can. Um, a huge thank you to you for your, your support on Patreon and and, and uh, hu- Aggie sent us this most amazing email, which I'm sure Miss, me and Mr. D will, will discuss uh, on either side of this. But um, it's such a joy to hear from writers like yourself who've, you know, overcome so much and had such great success and uh, and now living living that dream. So huge congrats to you, Aggie. And Thank you. Um, it's been a joy speaking to you and, and hope to yes. speak to you again real soon. And you know what, Mark? Thank you so much for what you do for writers everywhere. I know I'm not the only person who feels... Um, just, just happy knowing that you guys are out there in the world doing this, and really appreciative. Well, you're you're the kind of people that we do it for, so it's our absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Take care. Speak to you again soon. Bye. What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author. Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Oh, Mr. Stay. Where do you want to start? <laughs> I, 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 the, first thing I, the first thing I discussed with you after I'd listened to that interview was how many hours we've got to record because I have so many mm. notes on this. I mean, I usually have yeah, a lot too. of notes on every interview, but there's so much to talk about in this interview. Um, least of all, just, just how funny Aggie is and, and how brilliant. She doesn't realize it, I know. She's going to be listening to us thinking, what? But she is absolutely brilliantly entertaining. And you know, you know, I, and I hope everyone else feels this, but you come away from this interview and the first thing you want to do is go and buy all her books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? Because you think yeah. if, 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 her, if her prose, if her stories are even a tenth as good as how she comes across when she's chatting with us, these books are absolutely going to be brilliant. But let's, let's dive in and let's talk about it. So much to cover. The story about the the band books. I mean, this resonated with me, Mark. I know it resonated with you as well. Yeah, I mean, I my parents were very similar. They let we went to the library every week. 
they let me read anything. Uh, and I've done the same with my kids. I think, you know, kids are always smarter and more resilient than we give them credit for. And I think our generation, Aggie, you know, you, me, Aggie, we're all kind of the same age, grew up in the 70s, 80s, Generation X. We all had these pretty warped childhoods, I think, and we're, proud, you know, fiercely proud of it. But we are living in a time when more and more libraries, particularly in the US, are banning books. And I think that's something we should be proud of as writers, you know, because we are terrifying people with nothing but words. And it's, and it, but before we start recording, we're talking about the fact that you and I are both waking up at 5 a.m. at the moment. It's probably to do with, you know, what, what everything that's going on in the world. And when I wake up at 5 a.m., I've got iBooks on my phone and I'm reading Fahrenheit 451, the Ray Bradbury book, you know, the science fiction book about mm. a society where they, they're burning all the books and just feels more relevant than, than ever. And there's great scenes in that book where they're talking about how they're terrified of words and poems. And people are terrified of words because they know what books and words are capable of. And it's not. It's not that books shape or warp our minds. That That is, and we all joke about having a warped childhood or that warp changed me as a person kind of thing. That's what people who want to ban books want you to think, that it warps your mind. Actually, what, it, what reading does and what a good story does is it provokes a kind of critical thinking that frightens people who want to ban books. You know, I, this is where books have a lot in common with mind-expanding drugs, okay? Because they open your eyes to another world. And I think, you know, as a writer, if you can show someone how you see the world in a truthful and honest way, in a kind of unvarnished way as well, and that can be through a crime novel, it can be through a thriller, it can be through a fantasy, it can be, it can be a children's book, it can be a book about mermaids and unicorns, whatever it is. But if you can show people how you see the world and 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 frighten them with words and open their minds with words, then, you know, that's uh, that's an amazing thing. So if you're ever sitting there thinking, as Aggie did at one point, what's the point? Why am I doing this? You know, why what, is this going anywhere? Um, your words, you know, they, they affect people and it, mm. it really is important. And, you know, we've just, we were talking about the Queen and the funeral and everything be before this. And, you know, again, whatever you think of the, the royal family, there was poetry there. There was, you know, that was that whole thing that we all watched on TV. That was put together by people who knew the power of words and be it poems or prayers or hymns or songs or even, you know, just you know that the traditions that we have uh, involving words in this country and all over the world, you know, it's it's powerful, powerful stuff. Oh, it's it's moving, it's emotionally stimulating, and I think the thing for me that I find fascinating, and I, I've I've had this journey with my. I've got a, a, a very, very young teen, just become a teen, and she's into all she does. She has this kind of like um, this need to kind of find the most kind of obscure and crazy books, you know, on, on Wattpad, which isn't even like, which isn't even kind of like your local library. It's like anything goes on there and you just don't Brilliant. quite know what you're going to get. And And yet... What's really interesting is she also tr desperately wants to watch all the scary TV stuff, as every kid does. You know, Dad, Dad, can I watch that R-rated? And I'm like, no, just give it a few more years. But the thing about <laughs> the thing about reading books is, no matter what you read, you can contain the the creation in your imagination of what you're reading yeah, yeah, based yeah. on yeah. based on where you're at in, in life. 
But when you see something on TV that's like, you know, you're very young and you see something really horrific, you can never really remove that thought. But but you can kind of, it's almost like you're, you play in your own playground of your own imagination, depending on what age you are. So, you know, a lot of people were worried that kids will, will engage too much on things that maybe aren't appropriate for them. But again, they're reading it within the sphere of how they see the world at this moment. So it's a very, it's a, it's, it's a lifelong, and, but, and like you say, getting anything banned, um, I mean, it worked for Frankie Goes to Hollywood, right? <laughs> works as you were back in the day, top of the pops. Yeah. Mike Reed, he sat them straight to number one, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> anything, anything that got banned, it was like, right. Because what would, what would happen is everyone would rush to our price or whatever, or Bird <laughs> yes. Records, and then and they'd buy the, just to listen to it, to then have an opinion on it, to say, well, yes, this should have been banned. And then and then they realised they've actually contributed to its success. But it is it is hard as a parent to sort of step back and go, okay, I'm going to let you do this. I'm going to let you oh, go is. into this. And I, but I think it's part of being a parent. You know, we talk about having awkward conversations. Look, if you're going to be a parent, your life is going to be full of awkward conversations. If you don't want awkward conversations, don't become a parent. Simple as that. You know, yeah. so it's so uh, it is it is a brave thing to sort of brave thing. I mean, it's it's something we have to do as parents to step back and let them it's go. A right of it, passage. Know? Yeah. But you yeah. know, I mean, we're we're recording this uh September 21st. Today is Stephen King's 75th birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. King. Happy birthday, uh, this Stephen. is obviously coming right. Yeah. You're welcome on the show anytime. Just want to say open invitation. Well, you know, we'll we'll slot you in somewhere. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, I was reading Steve. I mean, it was the TV version of Salem's Lot that that because and it was my dad. My dad says you'll like this. This is scary. You'll. I was like ten, you know. But I watched it, and of course, there's the bit where the kid is at the window, scratching at the window, saying, "Open the window, Mark. Mark, open the window, Mark." I was like, "Ah!" <laughs> and uh, and Dad said to me, he "said If you like this, there are books." So I started reading the books, you know. Um. So. That started a kind of a lifelong obsession. Hasn't done me any harm. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting though, isn't it? It is. And I think, you know, the thing I'm learning rapidly, having only done parenting for about 20 years now, you know, you just about figure it <laughs> just out. Just get the, the hang the last of it. One. They grow up yeah, and bugger the off. The last one leaves home. It's, it's like, oh, the, the secrets are, oh, oh they've gone. But um, then. <laughs> what, I've, what, I've discovered, what I've discovered is we're always two steps behind our kids. We're mm. always two steps, no matter where we think they are, they're always two steps ahead of us. Always, yeah. always, always. Yeah. And so, you know, we have to kind of give, a, I think generally, I think it's good It's good to take an interest in what your kids are reading. Have discussions about it. Like yes. if there is stuff that's super inappropriate, then maybe like try and try and rein them in a little bit and say, maybe leave that till a bit later. But it's about, um, it's about, you know, allowing your own, reaction to where you what you hear them doing and say yeah but remember just give them an extra 10 percent because that's actually where they are because that's yeah, where yeah. we were when we were their age and we know that we absolutely yeah. know that we were yeah, yeah, we yeah. were reading all the horror books under the under the covers i mean you know so it's the, it's that it's that interesting but what a what a brilliant debate we should we should go into this in a whole episode in the future because there's so much more <laughs> to discuss isn't there this the second thing that i think so amazing to talk about is the story about her dad um i mean this this moved me and it it Mm. moved me in a week where i've been very moved by all the things that have been happening in the world i mean who could obviously you know the the queen's funeral um all of the all of the personal stories i've loved i've loved actually just dipping into some of the personal stories um of people whose lives lives were touched 
by the Queen. And all these, it always happens when, when somebody really well known dies and you don't quite fully really understand the impact they've had until they've passed because then all the stories come out of things everyone's kept a secret for all these years. And it connected me with, with Aggie's dad. The fact that right now, there's a lot of people who are incredibly sad about the passing of this incredible woman who who was the longest serving monarch and every, everyone's seen all the footage. But I think this is a really important thing. It's so timely to remember because it's so rare that you hear somebody in life turn around and say, don't cry for me. I'm, I'm not sad. I'm so happy that I've had this incredible life. I've done everything I wanted to achieve. So on the one level, I kind of wonder with people like the Queen, whether, you know, that's the kind of thing that she would have said privately. Like I've lived to 96 years of age. I've had an incredible life. I've met, I think she's probably met more people than anyone in the, in the world. I don't know if anyone's met more people than she had met in her lifetime. But it was so amazing to take it right back to family and have, to have your father say that to you at whatever age Aggie was when she heard that. It was it was the the thing that made her stop in her tracks, and then she asked that incredible question: "Am I even close to saying that?" Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's how I've been feeling a bit in the last couple of weeks with the Queen passing. I keep thinking, reflecting. You start reflecting your own life. You think, you know, what am I? What am I doing in service to the world? Like, what am I trying to create and leave as a legacy? And I just think this is. I mean, for her dad to have that insight at his stage in his life with lung cancer, absolutely mind blowing. Yeah, really is. Just for balance, I didn't watch any of the Queen stuff. I was working. I really? caught up. I, yeah, I watched the 15 minutes highlights on the six o'clock news. It was perfect. There was a lovely bit with uh, the corgis and the pony, which was great. Um, so, <laughs> but yeah, it's. Uh, I I think I think Martin, her dad, psychiatrist. Um, you know, obviously had this incredible perspective on the world, and uh, I think we need to look at. At Martin and say, you know, that's a life well lived. And yeah, we, can we get to that point? Have we done all the things that we want to do? Have we, you know, he traveled, he had a career, he had kids, grandkids, you know, it's, um, mm. it, it, she, I mean, as Aggie says, it lit a fire under me. And, it, it, you know, his words have done the same to me. I'm kind of thinking, I've got things to do. I've got so many things to do. I've got to, I've got to get out there. I've got to get it done, you know. Yeah. Um, the and clock the fact is always her, ticking. Well, and the fact for, for the fact for Aggie that what she then went to, and we know this is so true for so many people listening right now, and everyone we work with on the academy and everyone we chat with, it always comes back to that place of I need to get that book written. Mm. Because there's something about the power of a book that it lives beyond us. I've always said this: the words that we write down live forever especially now that we get you stick it online you know there's going to be a million and one backups on the cloud <laughs> it's like yeah. you can't get rid of it i mean that's a, you know one side it can be a downside but on the positive side your words live forever and i was actually just reading the other day i found some old documents um paper documents which i wanted to archive like digitally um, of my grandfather some he, he told his life story um, before he passed away oh, and I love having those words of his because when I was a kid, when I was like 10 years of age, I wasn't really interested in it, to be honest. I mm. thought, oh, it's just my grandfather waffling on. But now someone later in life, and maybe we all get to a point where we were approaching maybe that age where they recorded those words. And it's the same, like we think about 
will our kids, I mean, we joke about how our kids never read our books. You know, they don't. I mean, <laughs> but the thing is, when they get to age 25, 30, 35, whatever, they might pick that book up because mm. suddenly it's relevant to them. And then they get to learn a bit about who their dad was or who their mother yeah. was. And um, like, you know, back when I was, when, when my kids were like, you know, under 10, they didn't really care that I was out there doing music. And and then the minute they hit 18 and, and they started going to festivals, it was like, did you, did you used to play? And I'm like, yeah. And they were like, whoa. And it like, so that happens for every parent. I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to say it. No, no, say the word. Because no, pe people no, playing not, podcast no. bingo and they're waiting they, for you they, to say the word. <laughs> but they can only... They can only tick the box if you say the word. No, I can't say the word. <laughs> but I use that purely as an analogy for writers that one day good, good, good. the hope, the hope is, is that your book will be appreciated. And, and, and also imagine if you had the book of your uh, book that your great grandmother or great grandfather had written, because our, our great grandchildren are going to have all of our books. We don't, we don't get any of that. They didn't have Kindles or eBooks. No. All of our great-grandchildren and great-great-great, they will be reading the stuff that we're writing in 2022. Like, how bonkersly, right? How bonkers <laughs> is that to think that, that they will be learning? And we don't have that. But what will that mean to them in 200 years from now to have? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I, thought. I've been keeping a diary gosh, how many years? Almost 20 years now. And one of the reasons was, was I was thinking, okay, this will be interesting. Because we don't have any of that in our family. No one's kept any records. I'm starting to record stories from my dad and my mum. You know, Brilliant. Uh, my uncle had a brain hemorrhage recently. And, you know, I became very aware that there's not, you know, not a lot of time for these folks. So I'm, I'm trying to gather up the stories, but I've been keeping a diary and I do, it's weird. I, I kind of, I wasn't sure who it was for at first, but then I started apologizing to the kids. So I would say, <laughs> while I'm writing it, I would say something quite rude or whatever, say, sorry, kids, but you know, this, this is, you know, I apologize. This is maybe too you know much information. Day, you know, one yeah. day they're going to find them, right? Yeah. They go, oh God, dad. dad. You know, so, <laughs> but yeah. I never I, knew. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's just it's important. I really think it's important. To, it, I mean, Aggie's given us this opportunity to press the pause button on yeah. life. I like to think of it as pressing the pause button on life and just having a bit of reflection because we're so we're rushing head head first into all the busy stuff that we have to do, and it's so important to stop and think about the bigger picture and think about why you're writing a book, why you want to write a book, why you need to yeah. finish that book. There are so many reasons. So, but Mark, there is there is so much more that we have to talk about i mean um let's 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 talk briefly about about this great process that aggie has for writing dialogue first again just like luann goldie last week if you listen yep. to our episode with luann goldie she was talking about how she just writes all dialogue first aggie does the same thing i mean obviously that you know you heard aggie speaking she's got what we call in down our way, the gift of the gab, you know, she can talk and it's great. And it cracked me up. And again, as you said, it just makes you want to rush and, and read all, all of her books. Um, so yeah. And, but the, the idea of the cross country road trip, the map analogy, you know, as long as I have a destination, I get, it's weird. I interviewed an author yesterday and this is for an episode that's going to come in December who said something very similar. She said, uh, she feels like she's on a ship heading for a port, but she can move around on the deck of of the ship you know so this idea of having a destination and 
being able to change the destination at the last minute if you want, but having the end in mind, uh, it's something that I kind of cling to now. I like to know where my characters are going to end up and use that as a vector and head towards that. So that's some, it's, it's a great process. It's really, really it is cool. great. And, and this idea of the 20 to 40 day skeletal draft, I loved and yeah, this idea of yeah, scaffolding. Yeah. I mean, the visuals yeah. in that are so brilliant. And also, you know, again, you know, good reminder to everyone who wants to write a thriller, um, you know, Aggie doesn't decide the killer to the end of the book. So she keeps herself in suspense as well, Sorry. which Stephen King actually talks about that. Like, why would I want to know the ending, you know, before I, mm. I mean, it's good to know what, that something happens in the end, but you don't necessarily have to decide that it was, you know, Mrs. Pink in the, you know, <laughs> in, in the studio with the, with the candlestick. So I think it's a brilliant, I think it's a brilliant reminder to everyone out there who's, who's maybe struggling to work out what's missing in them. Yeah, well, the, the, re- the reason Agatha Christie did it, and we've spoken about this before, uh, but the reason Agatha Christie did it is that she gave equal weight to all of the characters. She didn't just focus on the murderer. She, it could have been any one of them. And then she got to the end and figured, okay, who can I who can I make the murderer? So it's it's a great te- great technique. And um, yeah, we can all, all learn a lot from that. I think. And Absolutely. she's in- and Aggie's invented a new word, plonsa. Plonsa, I like that. Part plotter, yeah. part plotter. Works for me. Why not? Yes, good. Absolutely. Absolutely fantastic. Now, there's so much more to talk about, Aggie. Mark and I decided that we can't talk for another you know, hour um, on this, but we, we're actually going to. <laughs> we're going to, but, yeah. um, but we're going we're gonna to save it for patrons and academy members who want to go deeper with us. So um, in the extended version of this podcast, we're going to deep dive and, and talk about that, uh, that porno- pornography uh, literary <laughs> magazine because there's some stories to tell around that. You don't want to miss that. We're also going to talk about the idea of everything happening for a reason. Uh, mm. a, you know, is a bad agent better than none? Brilliant mm. discussion around that. And the... You know, the hard part about writing is not necessarily the writing bit. It's about the agents selling it. We also talk about um, how how Aggie tracked down this independent editor, which changed everything for her. And also this very interesting, I believe, universal trait that we all have, which is a lot of people go into bookstores, love bookstores, but come away depressed. So we dive into that. And then also a bit more about the jobs and careers for life and some of Aggie's dreams uh, and some of her wish lists that she had on her bucket list. This extended episode is almost 30 extra minutes. So join us. If you want to get access to that, um, either pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and join the Academy or um, support this podcast um, and you will get access to the full episode. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support right mr stay well let's now dive in we've had an incredible story about aggie's journey from podcast listener to published author um it's quite a nice opportunity now to dive into some authors who are at that stage where they're working towards maybe one of their um first books and um you had a chat with uh, one of our academates didn't you jack Harmon? oh this is wonderful so uh jack Harmon was uh, born in London, developed an interest in history, and she studied history at university, specialising in the medieval period. So she's written some fantasy stuff, but she's returned to her historical fiction, a, a series featuring a character called Jack Martin. And these are set in the late Victorian uh, era in London and the Suffolk countryside. And Jack has been an academy 
from the beginning yeah for maybe over two yeah. years now yeah so it's an absolute joy to get to to know jack and you can find more about jack at jacquelineharman.wordpress.com i'll put a link in the show notes to that and uh, twitter and facebook um but, and she's had stories featured in, in anthologies like beers for beauty sears for curse hellhounds and here she tells us what the academy means to her hello jack how are you uh tell us about yourself hi mark um i'm fine um, I'm in Glasgow at the moment with my historian's hat on. Um, I'm actually a medieval historian. Um, I'm running a conference at the moment on uh, medieval genealogy with uh, some of my fellow trustees. Um, it's going well so far. <laughs> um, today I'm chairing, so I'm being filmed, which I really don't like, but uh, putting up with it. <laughs> Well, thanks for joining me on Zoom and film here. Uh, tell us about tell us about your big writing challenges before you joined the academy. Right. Okay. Well, confidence. Confidence has always been my problem with my writing. So, I thought, well, what better place to go than the academy, where I can um, see, join lots of other people, and uh, try and beat imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. and get loads of motivation and learn more about the craft of writing. It's all good. And I can talk writing and books to my heart's content. What could be better? Wonderful stuff. And how has the Academy helped you as a writer? Oh, in so many ways. Um, the community is just so supportive. Um, it's been great to be able to go to the hub ask questions, see what other people have been up to. Um, The courses, of course, um, go on there, work through the workbooks, go back to them, of course, check up on things. Uh, Of course, with all the the sound bites and the recordings from the podcast, be able to go back and just listen to the relevant bits again. Mm -hmm. Um, That's been hugely helpful because of course having listened to so many you forget where things are so that's made life a lot easier um yeah um and the coaching the craft sessions of course dig in and out go back to those whenever they're needed that's been great fantastic and what's your favorite part of the academy uh i hate i hate favorites i just i just love anything to do with writing but i sat down and i thought okay I think of it in terms of three C's. It's going to be craft, community, and confidence. And that's what the Academy means to me. Fantastic. And, and finally, Jack, what are you up to now? Are you working on a new project? What's, what, 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 where can we find you and what are you up to? I am working on a new project. Um, I've started writing a uh, gothic novel. So bit of a bit of the paranormal in there. Uh, I'm actually uh, done the first draft. So I'm now working on the uh, second draft. I have a mentor and we're getting on to about a third of the way through with it. Um, So the central question I'm sort of asking in this book is, um, if you could bring someone back from the dead, would you, if it meant an innocent had to die in exchange? 
Nice. Excellent stuff. Jack, thank you so much for speaking to us today. I'm going to let you get on with your conference. I know you're incredibly busy and hope to speak to you again soon. Take care. Okay. You too, Mark. Bye. Absolutely brilliant, Mark. Great. Um, And if you want to be like Jack, if you want to be a part of the Academy, do pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. And I've got a very interesting story about Jack. One of the weirdest things that happens, you know, you set up this Academy and you, you put it out into the world, really. I mean, it's global. Jack lived about one minute away from where I lived in Cambridge, England. Right. Isn't that bonkers? Literally the next road over. Um, I lived there for 15 years in this tiny village outside Cambridgeshire. And and when 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 Jack applied, I saw her dress. I'm like, hang on a minute. That's literally around. And yeah, she walks. I, I dropped her a note and she said, yeah. Oh, and I gave her my address. And she said, I walk past the house every day. <laughs> It's like so strange. So I have a special, Jack has a special place in my heart as well because we're we're neighbors. Don't know, we've never met. Brilliant stuff. Brilliant person in face to face. Brilliant stuff, Mark. Well, listen, so many, so many great stories. Is there anything left for wins on social media this week? A couple of wins on social media, which uh, I'm really enjoying. Now, uh, uh, one of our academates, Matt Athanasiou, uh, who is at Matt is Not Scary on Twitter, he's written a really cool article on in Smashing Magazine about designing a more thoughtful book review process. So, you know how companies can change their rating and review systems to better benefit users, and he's, he shares sort of steps to improve the experience of reviewing literature and other products while building a stronger connection, you know, with with those readers and the authors. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. So you can check that out. It's it's really fascinating, Matt. Was always such a great, you know, enthusiastic member of the academy as well. Was always a great writer. So um, do do check that out, folks. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. I've um, I, I read through it, and the bit that jumped out for me was this idea that when somebody gives like a, a one star review about your book because it didn't get delivered on time, there's something deeply flawed in the rating system when yeah. when you as the author gets affected by by something that wasn't even anything to do with the book. And it co- it comes back to this thing that. We need to develop critical thinking in schools. You know, this is um, it's one of these things. Instead of banning books, we need to get people thinking more. You know, and thinking critically uh, in in a constructive way. You know, so anyway, I could rant about that all oh. day. Let's let's keep it on the positive. <laughs> uh, we got some great news from Joe Ruiz, who's a member of the BXP team over on Facebook. Uh, he's been keeping us uh, keeping us posted with updates on a short story that he's been writing. So he's, he says. Writer's report, short story completed and submitted one day ahead of schedule. Uh, first, uh, thanks to my good friends in the BXP group. Thank you for your positive support. So I just, uh, I just got to close to seriously trashing. He came close to trash, trashing the whole thing because his love soon morphed into hate around, you know, around uh, 6,000 words. And, and he wrote over 10,000 words to get a 4,000 word short story. Six rounds of revisions. Uh, he cut a, a whole 500 word chunk out with one eye closed, which is a big thing for him so uh you know he's he's really really i mean short stories are so hard there's nowhere to hide hide but he says this was an essential exercise for me the story was less important 
than the act of shipping. And he says, I know the word is overused, but precisely the case. No expectations here of a byline on the cover. The publication says it takes six to eight months to report back. That's a lifetime in our current world circumstances. Anyway, Joe says, it doesn't matter. I've more stories to write and I'm a little short on time these days. I may have a book in me yet. Joe, I don't doubt it for a second, man. You've definitely got a book. There's one person that deserves a book more than pretty much anyone else that I know in the Academy. It's Joe. (laughs) So we're behind you all the way, Joe. Keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, A lovely note from uh, Penny Johnson, uh, who says, and she writes as Jane Davis. And she had a sort of a double win, if you like, because I did a, um, a book and chocolate draw giveaway for the ghost of ivy balm recently it was one of these sign up to one newsletter you can get a signed book and chocolate and she was one of the winners and she says it arrived the same day that her new book which is called the curlew's call which is a regency romance and i'll put a link in the show notes so you can check that out they both arrived on the same day so she said two lovely parcels came today uh including you know book and chocolate and the paperback of her next book and she says thank you mr stay mr d your podcast helped me turn a first draft into a good story and gave me the confidence to publish 10 books later now this is another author that we're hoping to get on the podcast uh, very very soon so do we'll be hearing penny penny's story real soon hopefully brilliant absolutely fantastic and and last but by no means least uh, steve gowland <laughs> and steve you know we we spoke to steve we've we've been talking to steve about this on on the bxp group today he said mr mr d would be proud of this revelation but man am i pissed off he said i just browsed my gaming stats for football manager since 2013 he says i've played 4814 hours he says if i'd written a thousand words per hour instead i'd have written 4.8 million words <laughs> or or 32 fantasy novels that are 150,000 words long. He says, what a waste of time. Now, to be fair, we've, in the group, we've all said to Steve, Steve, you got to take time to relax as well, man. You can't just write all the time. If you want to play a bit of football manager, I mean, one of the reasons, we, we, you know, we say, I mean, we were talking to Luanne Goldie about this last week. You know, she said, instead of watching trashy TV, she wrote. I mean, trashy TV is one thing, but Steve has written four, five books, fantasy epics. They're right. all absolutely, you know, yeah. SC Gal. Yeah. I don't think productivity is a problem with Steve. So, Steve, relax, man. You know, I love, <laughs> oh gosh, though, I love that stat. I, I love know. that stat. 32 <laughs> fantasy novels. But I've got to say, Football Manager, totally. I mean, I haven't played it for years. Most rubbish graphics you've ever seen, but you'd sit and watch those simulations all day and see if Liverpool beat Scunthorpe in the FA Cup. So I'm with you all the way, Steve. But my God, here the thing, here's the thing though. I think, I think on a, on a more serious note though, Steve has published a lot of books, but are there people out there that are just playing Football Manager or maybe mm. watching too much, like a lot of Netflix um, that haven't published that book? That's Steve. You've inspired them because you know. I think there is there, there's too many of us out there that that aren't writing enough, and we, we're making excuses that we haven't got time to write yet. We've got a lot of time to do um, things that are very easy to sit and do. So yeah, little little yeah, little bit of sandpaper going on yeah. there. I think for and it's very important S- to remind Steve us. has earned Steve has earned the right. He's earned to the right. A bit of football manager. Totally. Knows. Yeah. Totally. And may yeah. Scunthorpe not beat Liverpool in the FA Cup <laughs> final. But brilliant stuff. Well, Mr. Stay, this has been an absolute revelation of, a, of an episode. One of my favourite interviews in six years. I will openly mm. say that. Absolutely brilliant. So I wanted to really thank Aggie 
Um, firstly, for like emailing us when she did like three years ago, and yeah. then and then getting in contact again and telling us the kind of the updated story, and most importantly, inspiring so many people out there, I'm sure, who will be referencing her and this interview this week in maybe one of their emails that they send us in two, three years, or maybe next week. Yeah. So thank you, Aggie, for inspiring everyone, and thank you for everyone else who's stuck with us through this episode and hopefully have gone away with it bag full of new inspiration to make this week your very best writing week ever so mr say thank you so much for your time it's absolutely brilliant and uh it's a goodbye from mark one and a goodbye from mark two goodbye, goodbye.